Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. and welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonnie, and today we're coming to you live from Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to the show live every Thursday at 11 on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes. Today, my guest is someone I have admired and been inspired by for years, event designer and author David Stark. David has created some of the most incredibly creative parties for clients like Anna Sui, Jean-Paul Gaultier, House Beautiful, the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, and because I'm dying to ask if he got to meet Beyonce, the House of Daria. <laughs> One of the things I love most about David's work is how socially and environmentally conscious it often is. It is really rare to find an event planner who tries to work with sustainable materials, found in recyclable materials, or materials that can be taken down and donated to a good cause after the event. But David does all of that and more, and he also has a brand new book out called The Art of the Party. So I'm excited to talk about everything. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank Thanks so much for being here. So I like to start at the very beginning with every guest. Uh, tell us about where you grew up. Okay, I grew up in New Jersey. Oh. And um, I was one of those Jersey kids who couldn't wait to be in New York City. <laughs> like from the very instant that my parents said, you can go by yourself, I was there. So, How old were you when that happened? Um, I think I was 15. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, my parents were pretty, you know, my father grew up in New York, and so that was both a blessing and a curse because he was afraid but mm, he, okay. for me to go and explore, but, um, but I did. And, um, and then I went to art school. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, and, um, and I majored in painting. And I never intended to do what I do. I didn't even know what I do was a thing to do. Um, and, and the way I kind of got into it was when I moved to New York, um, I was a really, 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 really good waiter (laughs) and every cool, hot restaurant that opened, they would ask me to work there. And, you know, when I was 20, it was really fun and it was an instant social life and all, but I realized if I didn't make a change, I'd be the really, really good 75 year old waiter. (laughs) There are a lot of those in New York. Um, well, and there's nothing wrong with being a, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful career and it's, it's, it's great. And I learned a lot about service. You know, now that I plan events, I'm, I'm in the service industry. So it's actually a different end to what I really started as a waiter. But, uh, you know, I was working in my studio painting and uh, I realized very quickly after being in my studio that I didn't want to be in a studio by myself. Mm. So I, you know, I would have a telephone in one hand and a paintbrush in the other, and I'd be talking to my friends the entire time I was painting. And so I realized that I was really interested in community, Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in collaboration, and I didn't know what that would mean. Um, And and at the same time, I started working with flowers as a way to support Mm. my painting. It it was the creative solution to um, waiting on tables. What were you doing with flowers? Well, I I was making arrangements for parties, and, and so like painting, you know, you're dealing with form and you're dealing with color and you're dealing with all those things. And it was, you know, this big creative solution to how to get out of waiting on tables. Um, probably working with flowers is harder work yeah. than waiting on tables. 
it's it's like if you've ever been to the flower market, it's like going to see the Teamsters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're moving freight. You know, you're working really hard. It's, it's physical labor. Um, but, you know, in the beginning of that, it was really about mastering how to make an arrangement and how to become the master of the flowers and how to learn about flowers. And, um, and that was very intriguing for, for a long, long time. Um, and, Were you self-taught? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a partner at the time and we did this yeah. together and, um, you know, we had a love of gardens and we had a love of flowers and, you know, we had some clippers and <laughs> we, we went clippers. to town. <laughs> so, and, you know, you learn by making mistakes and, and, you know, I think one of the things that I cite as the success of what I do is actually never having worked for another mm. floral designer because I didn't know the rules. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, there wasn't all this history of like, this is how we do things. And, um, you know, we, we worked out of a loft that was where we lived and we had this little tiny room that, um, had an air conditioning window, air conditioner <laughs> unit. And that was our, that was your fridge. Yeah. We used to call it Anne Frank's room. It was like this little <laughs> tiny room that was hidden. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, little by little, you know, we made beautiful arrangements and people would ask us to do parties. And then how did we, you start getting the word out about that? I'm so curious about how you kind of made those initial connections. Well, okay. Well, literally how I did it was at one of the restaurants that I was working at, my, the owner of the restaurant, my boss, um, for extra work for him, he would consult on opening other restaurants. Oh. And so he was opening what was destined to be the next five-star New York fancy restaurant and it was all built around flowers. And so my partner, um, I got my partner the opportunity to audition to doing the flowers there. Oh, wow. And this was before I was like super involved in the flowers. Yeah. And so he did the audition and he won the audition. And he was from Israel. And so, you know, while he spoke English very well, he couldn't write it. So what would happen at the restaurant is people would say, oh my God, the flowers are beautiful. Who did them? And they would give out the number and people would call to do a wedding. When he'd have to write the proposal, he couldn't do it. So uh -huh. I would help him write the proposal. And if he got the job, I would help him do the job. Yeah. And little by little, you know, I helped more and more until I was like super in there. And, you know, I'd give up a shift at the restaurant. You know, when we got busier and busier, I'd give up another shift and so on until I was holding on to one shift and, you know, hoping that I would transition out. Um, but, you know, those little jobs, I mean, there was never any intention of yeah. building an empire or like event design. Yeah. I mean, it was like flowers for parties. It yeah. was so, super naive. It was really um, sweet and mm -hmm. innocent. And, um, and, you know, we would do really beautiful flowers for parties. One day we were invited to um, interview for doing the decor for New York City Opera's Gala. That's and a the, pretty big jump from flowers for parties. So this was a couple of years <laughs> later. And um, the chair lady of the event was Carolyn Rome, who's a noted floral person herself. And I remember so distinctly, she probably has no idea who I am or remembers this at all. I doubt that. But um, she took a look at our portfolio and she said, well, you know, there's no question that you guys make the most incredible flower arrangements, but this uh, evening is not about flowers at all. And so there was like silence and all of a sudden it occurred to me like this big light bulb went off. Oh, you can use other things to make a party. <laughs> and, you know, that was a really freeing experience because it made me realize, you know, flowers, that's one tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's not necessarily the default tool that's right for every single thing, for every single occasion at every single time. And that was a really freeing experience. And so we went back to the studio and we brainstormed and we came up with a cool idea and we got the event. And that was um, sort of the start of how it really could be anything. And um, what was that first event? What did the theme end up being? Um, we, what did you use? Well, the opera was a, a version of Macbeth, but they had set it in industrial England, so it was really dour. <laughs> so the trick was, how do you extend the drama of what's on the stage? But, you know, how, how it, it has to be celebratory because it's a party. It can't be like this industrial dungeon that you're dining in. So we built, um, we took scaffolding from, from construction sites, and we built you know, like 25 foot tall scaffolding towers. And we covered all of the shelves in candles. Oh my gosh. And there were three acts for the opera. And every time the audience came out for intermission, we'd have to stop what we were doing and clear the floor. And they would all come out onto the floor and then they'd go back into the theater. And when they went back oh into the theater, gosh. we'd start climbing up the scaffolding again and put more candles on. And like, eventually we finished Um, but it was an interesting process to get to the finish line and, you know, it was rewarding and it was wonderful. And, you know, that's where it really became more about, um, mixing an art installation. You know, like what I do now is really one part art installation. Mm -hmm. It's one part interior design. It's one part, you know, party planning. It's one part, um, decorating Mm -hmm. and it's one part corporate branding. Yes. You know, and so it's like all these things that are mixed together. But like, if you said to me 18 years ago, you're going to be doing this, I'd be like, what are you talking about? So. <laughs> what did you think you were going to do when you were younger? Well, I thought I was going to... Well, first, I thought I was going to be a puppeteer. <laughs> Wait, where did that come well, from? Well, as a kid, I was fascinated with puppets. And so, you know, the running joke in my family, like, they'd find some scrap from a piece of, you know, a gum wrapper on the ground, and they'd say, would you like to save this and make a puppet out of it? <laughs> and I would. And, but I was really interested in not so much, you know, performing with the puppets, I was just interested in the set that that the puppets were in. And I was interested in the puppets themselves, but I didn't want to have my hand in a puppet, yeah. you know, making its mouth move. Um, and then, you know, when I went to art school, you know, my parents wanted me to be a graphic designer or an illustrator, but, you know, when I got to the wonders of RISD, I realized, like, wow, I could do anything. I could be a glassblower. I yeah. could, you know, be a filmmaker. I could do fashion. And so it was really hard to pick a major, and um, to my parents' chagrin, I, I picked painting. I but, think that's much to all parents' chagrin. I think painting is one of the ones that people get really nervous yeah. about. <laughs> well, now, you know, my parents are, they totally believe in the path, and, and it was sweet. I was at RISD a couple of weeks ago. I was giving a lecture there. Um, they have a program called Art Af- uh, Life After RISD, mm-hmm. and um, it was nice because it was very inspiring to the kids because, you know, you're asked to pick this things so early on when you get there Mm -hmm. and you're not really prepared to do and I understand why the schools have to have you do that but you're really not prepared to make that life choice Uh, but the beauty of that school is it's like an intellectual spa and Mm so you're sort of taught creative problem solving and that creative problem solving can apply to anything you choose to do Mm -hmm. whether you become a doctor or whether you become a painter and um what I feel really blessed about is that every single day I apply things that I've learned there to everything that I do. And there are things that, you know, freshman year, I never understood what these teachers would say. And then, you know, now as like a 44 year old person, I say, Oh yeah, that's what he was talking about (laughs) on that Thursday. So, um, you know, it was a great experience, but, um, 
yeah, so that's that's the path. That's how I got to where I am. So when you started to sort of go out on your own, how did you decide to sort of structure that as a business? Because at some point it turns from this like very sweet, naive thing into something that has to be a reality. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by how event design like is set up as a structure. Did you have a plan for that in the beginning or did you just kind of roll with it? No, it was like a big roll. <laughs> um, you know, over time, you know, now I have 33 employees that work full time. God, that's huge. I and, had no idea it was that big. Yeah, and I have a lot of freelance employees too and um you know grace one of the things like when i first started we really bucked at the the conventions of what corporate stuff was you know we didn't want to have business cards Mm -hmm. we didn't want to have titles i mean it was all very naive and then i realized like over time you know you can do things in a unique way but there are certain conventions that are useful like Mm -hmm. a business card you know helps people contact Uh, you And it helps, a title helps people understand what you do, but it also helps the people that work for you understand what they do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over time, I became overwhelmed, and we were really running it like mom and pop, and we were not empowering people to grow or make decisions, and everybody was sort of a grand assistant. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that was not a way to sustain something for a length of time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something that was fulfilling to me. You know, the whole idea of collaboration is not to just have lots of assistance. It's to really learn and grow from the other people that you work with. And, um, and so by luck, I found a woman who worked for Barry Diller for many years, running one of his internet concerns. And she had um, left that job and she, she went to write a book about her philosophies on um, running companies. And I found her right at the end of writing that book and shopping that book around and wanting to go back into the workplace and actually practice what she preached. And she turned out to be a godsend because she put a real structure to something Mm -hmm. that had no structure. And, um, And there were some growing pains, but the truth is that that kind of structure allows us to be more free. Mm-hmm. And where I started thinking that structure was something that was very confining, what I'm now learning is that structure gives you freedom. And um, and I'm not going to profess that it's so easy now mm-hmm. or that it ever gets solved. You know, what I've learned about a business is it's like a balance, it's like a scale that's always imbalanced. And that the minute that you fix this one thing that's the thing that's putting it out of balance you have to fix this new thing that cropped up. Exactly. And I used to get really upset about that. And now I just accept that that that's what's running a business. And Mm -hmm. and because I don't get worked up about it anymore, it's a lot easier. I mean, it doesn't get easier, but it's easier mentally. Yes. You have an easier time dealing or accepting the fact that it's perpetually changing and that it's a constant balancing act. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then we come back. I want to know what the average day in the life of David Stark is like. Uh oh.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Did you know HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a member-supported nonprofit organization? If you like what you're listening to, go to our website and click that donate button. Become a member and get special discounts, invites, VIP treatment, t-shirts, and more. Support us in our mission to bring you the freshest food content in the nation. Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today I'm speaking with event designer and author David Stark. I want to talk about what an average day in the life of your of David Stark is, which there probably is no average day, but give us a little bit of a peek of, I heard before we started recording that you get up at 4 a.m., so... I do. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's 5, but I generally get up between 4 and 5, which... It's I, crazy. I, I'm not gloating about it, and I'm not <laughs> proud of it, and I don't even want to do it, but I do. And... Um, you know, it's kind of the only way I get it all done. I, I'm a morning person, so I do need to have those hours in the morning to catch up. Mm. And I find that, you know, I, I stay up late too. It's not like I go to bed at 10, but my brain is not as able to conquer more complex things later at night. Yeah. And um, so I get up at four or five. I work for a couple of hours. I have breakfast. I go to the gym. And then after the gym, um, there's generally a million meetings, presentations, works, working with the, the gang in the office, installations for events. Um, you know, it's kind of a roller coaster all throughout the day, which ends probably somewhere in the, the 8 to 10 o'clock range. Mm-hmm. Tell us what an average sort of how the life of a party comes to be from start to finish for most of your parties are people coming to you or are you pitching directly or what's that process like for people who are interested in event design yeah most of the you know at this point i would say eight out of ten projects come to us um you know that that's not always been the case and and we certainly there are things out in the world that we think oh that would be wonderful to do and we go after it um but most often, I mean, the, our, our work kind of splits into three different genres. Um, we do a, a certain amount of corporate work. And those corporations are, you know, corporations like the Target Corporation mm-hmm. or um, Valentino or, you know, corporations that range in, in retail to um, magazines. Like mm-hmm. we did a party for Elle magazine last evening. Um and then we do a lot of non-for-profit work. Uh, so that's everything from cultural institutions, the Whitney Museum, the Metropolitan Opera, uh, the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, uh, to other organizations like New Yorkers for Children, the Robin Hood Foundation. I love your Robin Hood Foundation Thank events. You. They're always great. Um, and then we do a lot of social events. So, you know, we throw a mean bar mitzvah and <laughs> um, we make a great wedding. And... My philosophy is that we create relationships with people. And so maybe I might meet somebody that sits on the board of a non-for-profit foundation and we have such a good time working together that they ask me to plan their daughter's wedding and then their husband's business is doing something and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so we tend to have the same clients for a lifetime and we tend to sort of ride the milestones of their world. 
And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who do what I do that say, well, I'm not going to do a bar mitzvah or Mm. I'm not. But, you know, frankly, those kinds of social events are just, uh, they're probably the most creative ones out Mm -hmm. there. And a lot of times the ideas that you cook up there are really good for corporate or non-for-profit and vice versa. And so I actually find that they're really wonderful research mechanisms and and they have a really good dialogue between the two. Um, But people will tend to come to us, whether they're people at a corporation or a non-for-profit or socially, and they'll say, um, you know, we're going to have an event and we want you to come up with a big idea. And so if it's a corporation, maybe they're launching a product and they'll mm-hmm. say, you know, we need a big idea. So that's not just decorating the party. That's, you know, it's really a marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's how do, you know, companies have become much more sophisticated. And so no corporation is having a party because it's fun. Yeah. They're having it because there's business involved and they're looking to get their name out. They're looking to get the product out. And, and it's become a competitive marketplace. Mm-hmm. So it's really about how do you take their brand and put it into three dimensions and how do you um, get the most amount of people to touch it or to be touched by it. And so, you know, social media is a big player. There always needs to be a social media strategy involved, um, you know, inventive ideas, um, you know, just having nice food and yeah. pretty flowers is not the thing that makes that tick anymore. How much creative input do you get in it? And I guess it probably changes per project, but I wonder how much you really get to put your personal style in there, or is it like half and half, kind of what their vision is? Well, I I get a lot. Um, I mean, I would say that I work best with corporation. I I work best with the brands that uh, are not necessarily about a personal... You know, like I would not be the, the, the right person, for example, for Calvin Klein. Mm. Because like the Calvin Klein vision is basically like a white calla lily and a square candle. (laughs) And like that first and foremost needs to be about that brand identity. Um, But very often we're brought in like, you know, to to reinvent an an older brand that wants to hippify their image. Um, Or, you know, brands that have ever changing product or or different things that are going on. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of variety in my work. I mean, you know, one of the things that I like about the new book is that it shows things from, you know, drop dead, beautiful floral stuff to crazy installations with wacky materials. And it's not that, you know, I have a split personality. It's because we're designing things that are specific for people and occasions and locations. And it's just like getting dressed in the morning. You know, some days it's 90 degrees and you're wearing a tank top and flip flops. And some days it's, you know, 30 degrees and you're wearing three sweaters and a hat and gloves. And they're both right. You know, it, it has to be what's the right thing for the occasion and the scenario. Um, so people look to us for the creativity that we bring to the table when it's something that is needing to be a more conservative or um, toned down isn't the right word because we do an awful lot of toned down. Yeah. Too. <laughs> but, you know, a more conventional scenario where you know they tend to not call us for that anymore Mm. there was a different time in my life where they did and the goal was to be all things to all people but more and more people come to us for what we do yeah well i want to talk about your latest and fifth book 
right? Fifth, yeah. Fifth, uh, which is called The Art of the Party, which officially comes out on May 7th from the Monticelli Press. And it's 225 pages of 25 of your events, from private celebrations to huge charitable galas. And I love that on Amazon you have a pull quote from David Byrne. I just want to say that's got to be the coolest thing I've ever seen, um, which I want to read it because it's so spot on. He said, the scale and visual impact of David's installations rival those by many contemporary artists at the Whitney Biennial or the Chelsea Gallery. And it's so true. What I associate your work with is almost like an art installation to me. It doesn't even feel like a party, which I mean is a huge compliment. To me, party design sounds so stuffy in my head. And for what you do, I write about it on my blog because it feels like a design statement less than like decorating. Um, Let's talk about the book, What's Inside and Why You Decided to Do Another One. Sure. Um, You know, it's really like a a look under the hood of the car. Um, You know, we have for the last couple of years have been documenting the installations, you know, so putting everything together. And I find that those pictures are often just as interesting or more interesting than the finished product. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's, you know, really full circle for me is that it takes a really large group of people to pull any of these productions off. And that collaboration, that kind of teamwork was something that I wanted to celebrate in the book because, you know, it's easy to look at the finished product and say, wow, how did that get done? But the way it got done was by an an amazingly talented, committed group of people that have a, a shared vision, which is to make cool stuff. And I am very lucky and blessed that I've been able to steer our ship. You know, I, I realize that I'm not really decorating. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're making art installations that happen to be populated by people that are guests for a party. Mm-hmm. And um, that's different than decorating a room. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And, um, you know, that's where my background at RISD comes into play. And, you know, like, I never really thought it would come full circle to that. But more and more, you know, people are really wanting that kind of experience. And, you know, because everybody spends so much time on the internet and on the computer, and and more and more, the kind of interaction with people is harder to come by. Mm -hmm. When we create these experiences, we want them to be ones that are really lasting and memorable, and where you can interact with other people, where you can have the magic of an experience that's live and how that magic of an experience happens that's live, you know, is, is, is making things that are different. It's, it's surprising people and it's harder to surprise people these days. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody sees more and more and more all the time. So, um, so the book really, I think showcases that quite well. I think it showcases also the steps to get to the end result Mm -hmm. and the idea that all of the ingredients of a party from the invitation to the food to the decor to um, the seating charts Mm -hmm. really are the ingredients to make something that's a really special occasion. I mean, I think the invitation is a wonderful example because if you think of the party as the the feature film, the invitation is the coming attraction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I want to show in the book is how all of these little steps are really creative moments. They're not necessarily just to do things to cross off the to-do list. They are real opportunities for creativity and to create, you know, ideas and impressions. And, you know, when you take when you stop and you look at all of those things that are the givens and you think, OK, how could I do this differently? How can I make this special? Um, that can really lead to something that's a really unique experience that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite unique experiences that you've designed in this book uh, was a fundraiser for the American Friends of the Israel Museum in which you used 
thousands of yards of green fluorescent flagging tape. And it's. I wanted to bring this one up because the photographs of you guys installing it are actually my favorite versus the photographs of the actual finished events because you get an idea of how much work and coordination goes into something of this scale, which is enjoyable just as a visual experience mm-hmm. for me, but is so inspirational as somebody who's one of a many people in a generation that really are inspired by DIY mm-hmm. kind of events. And to me, there's always an element of that in your work that obviously can't be replicated at home on that scale, but kind of reminds me that really inventive and interesting events, even on the home scale, are completely possible because these ideas you're using and especially sort of low cost and everyday materials like that flagging tape are something that everybody has access to. And that's what I find so inspiring about your work. Um, We don't have a ton of time left, but I want to ask a question. um, What do you think you've learned from life from or what have you learned about life from event design? I have learned that you start with a plan and when and it's great to start with a plan but things don't always work out as your plan uh, as you have planned (laughs) so if you are able to think on your feet and adapt accordingly that makes you a great producer and I think those are really good words to live by because you know you can't plan your whole life so if you can roll with the punches and then you can innovate as you do so but I deal with so many people that I've learned to not, you know, to, to keep calm. You know, people always remark, you're so calm and in, in such a stressful business. How do you do that? And I've just learned over time that um, getting crazed doesn't make it better. And, you know, throwing things and, and throwing temper tantrums doesn't make the, what started that problem better. So if you can always keep calm and you're, you know, then, then you're really getting someplace and I really try to remember that every single day that's great good words to live by well thank you so much for being here David and thanks to all of you for listening you can pick up David's book The Art of the Party on May 7th or pre-order it on Amazon you can also visit David online at davidstarkdesign.com and check out their pretty inspiring Twitter feed I'll have to say is probably one of my favorite behind the scenes designer Twitter feeds Um, it's at davidstarkinc so check them out and thanks for listening Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.